And I think part of the reason we're so fascinated by the Titanic, looking back, is that it is indeed a symbol of this era that Americans called the Gilded Age, people in Great Britain call the Edwardian Age, an era of peace and huge prosperity mm-hmm. and huge wealth accumulation, along with, of course, great uh, inequality in society. Oh, You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 138, Time Trek, From Promise to Disaster. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Podcast 138 here on The Sill. Today, Peter and I are sending out to you another episode in the Time Trek series, and we're calling this episode From Promise to Disaster. We're going to focus on three examples of great promise that led to disaster from the 20th century. The promise and disaster of the 1960s, the promise and disaster of the 1920s, and the promise and disaster of the Titanic. And we're going to start with the Titanic. And to help us understand the context and aftermath of one of the worst marine disasters in history, we have a special guest on the podcast today. Here to talk about the promise and disaster of the Titanic is historian and writer Hugh Brewster. Welcome to the podcast, Hugh. Oh, thank you, Harry. Good to be here. Hi, Hugh. Great to have you. Hey, Peter. Now, you've written several books about the Titanic and its passengers, including Inside the Titanic, a giant cutaway book with artist Ken Marshall, 882 and a half amazing answers to all your questions about the Titanic, and Gilded Lives, Fatal Voyage, among others. So, Hugh, can you talk about what this ship represented for those living in the early part of the 20th century? In other words, what was the promise that surrounded this vessel? Well, that's an excellent question. I think part of the reason we're so fascinated by the Titanic, looking back, is that it is indeed a symbol of this era that Americans called the Gilded Age, people in Great Britain called the Edwardian Age, an era of peace and huge prosperity Mm -hmm. and huge wealth accumulation, along with, of course, great uh, inequality in society. But the story of the Titanic really begins in 1907 at a dinner party hosted by Lord Peary at his elegant mansion in Belgravia in London. He was the head of the Harland and Wolfe shipbuilders, a massive shipbuilding concern in Belfast. And the other guest was J. Bruce Ismay, who was the director of the White Star Line, one of the largest shipping concerns of the time. And White Star Line's great rival, the Cunard Line, which was the first of the great transatlantic shipping lines, were about to launch the Lusitania and its sister, Mauritania, which was the buzz of the shipping world. They were to be the most luxurious and the fastest liners ever built. Mm -hmm. And so White Star needed to plan their response. So that evening after dinner over brandy and cigars, Perry and Ismay sketched out plans to build two and what would become eventually three of the largest and most luxurious liners ever built. White Star liners ships tended to end in IC as opposed to the IA of the Cunard Line, Mauritania, Lusitania, 
Yep. So these new liners would be called Olympic, the Olympic-class liners. And Olympic was to be the first, Titanic was to be the second, and then eventually there was a third, which was called Britannic. Mm-hmm. Mm. And what was the symbolism of, in terms of the general public's perception, these new ships being built, what was the sense that they had about the promise of all this? Were they excited? Were they curious? Oh, absolutely. There are postcards that are much prized by collectors of Titanic and Olympic stacked up against the world's other great monuments, Uh Uh, the Eiffel Tower, the Washington Monument, the Mm -hmm. Vatican, and so on, standing on their end, and the heading is the greatest of all the works of man. Right. So this was an era of astonishing progress, technological progress. It was also the great era of immigration. White Star and Cunard made a lot of their money from transporting impoverished immigrants to the New World in their lower decks, even though the upper decks were furnished with ever more elegant accommodations Mm -hmm. for the wealthy transatlantic trade. A new class of particularly wealthy Americans who spent the winter in London for the season or on the continent, Mm -hmm. and then their summers at their places in Newport and other such watering holes in the United States. Many of them kept homes in Paris and other places. So this was a new wealthy breed of international travel, the jet set of the day, who traveled on liners, and a lot of them knew each other. They would see names they invariably knew on the first-class passenger list, and they were a very exclusive, wealthy coterie. Lady Duff Gordon, who was actually born in Guelph, Ontario, as just Lucy Sutherland, the famous couturier who was on board the Titanic, described it as a small world bent on pleasure. (laughs) The hedonism of its time. Yeah. These were wealthy folk who loved pleasure. They weren't all idle aristocrats or idle plutocrats. Many of them were, like Lady Duff Gordon herself, were high achievers. She ran a fashion empire. And there were other people like Charles Hayes, who was president of uh, the Grand Trunk Railroad. Mm. and was coming back for the opening of uh, the Chateau Laurier Hotel in Ottawa. The Astors, of course, and Guggenheim. Oh, of course. Yes, there was John Jacob Astor, who was probably the world's wealthiest man who was on board. And um, yes, of course, the notorious Guggenheim, who was bringing his mistress back to America without letting anybody know that she was on board, and Madame Obar. So it was it was quite a collection. Now, that immigration that you spoke about, a, yes. large, a large part of that was Ellis Island, wasn't it? Yeah, they would stop at Ellis Island for these people. They didn't actually when they brought the, uh, the survivors home on the Carpathia. But yes, many of the poor immigrants would be sequestered at Ellis Island. And part of the reason that third-class passengers were kept separate from first and second was because of disease mm-hmm. and fear of disease right, right. among working-class immigrants. Mm-hmm. So the disaster happens, and by now, almost everybody kind of knows the general outline of what happened. What was the immediate aftermath? Let's talk about kind of the repercussions of the disaster. What was the immediate aftermath? Well, it took a, a short while for the story to leak out, and at first they thought, Titanic uh, hits iceberg, everyone saved, and so on. Mm -hmm. But because of the time it took for the rescue ship, Carpathia, number of days to arrive in New York 
and the names of survivors and the names of those who did not survive were being sent by Marconi Wireless. The story became absolutely sensational, as one mm. newspaper said, a story that has shocked two continents as they have never been shocked before. Mm. So it was certainly the biggest news story of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I understand, too, that after the disaster, stocks in Marconi Wireless went through the roof. Is that true? You're quite right. The wireless room, as it was called, mm-hmm. on the Titanic was not owned by the White Star Line. It was a concession owned by the Marconi Company, oh, okay. uh, named for the man who had invented it mm-hmm. and who profited from it. And the Marconi Company was criticized during the investigation. You know, how much they profited from it, I'm not sure. But certainly there was huge attention around wireless and the importance of wireless. And after the Titanic disaster, they made sure that wireless messages received had to go directly to the bridge and that it should be part of the ship's navigation. Right. And part of the disaster was the kind of arrogance around this whole thing. They really did classify it as unsinkable. And so apart from the actual occurrences with the ship itself and the sinking of it, there was a kind of psychological question here about this kind of arrogant approach to everything, wasn't there? Well, there was a certain complacency, a certain belief in technology that we still have today. I mean, look at the size of many of these new cruise ships, many of which are very hard to navigate. And of course, the recent pandemic has shown the vulnerability Mm -hmm. of traveling in close quarters on cruise ships. And so it's very modern. We believe in technology. We tend to believe in things. Many Titanic historians will tell you that the Titanic didn't bill itself as unthinkable. It was hailed as that after the disaster. But in the small print in one of its brochures and in the shipbuilder, which was the sort of organ of the time that talked about all the new ships, and everyone knew about the double hull. And in its description, it said the 16 watertight compartments would render the ship practically unsinkable. Mm-hmm. But there certainly is evidence that some of the passengers believed the ship to be unsinkable, which is why they were reluctant to get into lifeboats. They were sure the the Titanic would continue to float until rescue could arrive. And, and that was why there were only lifeboats on board for half the people on board, because the sea lanes were very, very busy at the time. And as long as the ship could float, there would be sure to be other ships that could come to the rescue. And as long as they had enough lifeboats to ferry passengers over to passing ships, everything should be fine. There were quite a number who heard the Titanic's distress call, but they were too far away, including the sister ship Olympic, who received the distress call but were not close enough to come to the rescue. One of the great Um, tragedies, too, Hugh, I, I was watching a documentary about the Titanic recently, and apparently there was a ship, the Californian, that was not too yes. far away that did not actually recognize the flares that they saw as distress signals. Yes, well, the California is another one of the great controversies of the Titanic story. The California was a Leyland Line freighter, and... It encountered the ice field. It wasn't just one iceberg that the Titanic encountered. I mean, it was sailing into a huge ice field mm-hmm. with dozens of icebergs and pack ice and so forth. And the California was ahead of the Titanic. And when its captain realized that it was in an ice field, not just having to avoid one or two icebergs, it decided to shut down and spend the night. 
and its wireless operator sent out messages to all the ships in the area that they were steaming into an ice field. The Titanic was fully aware from other ships, mm-hmm. from messages received throughout the day, that there was ice ahead, and they had made preparations to telling the lookouts to keep a sharp eye for ice and so on. But the Titanic's wireless operator was um, sending out messages. The Marconi company made its money uh, from passengers paying a few shillings to have messages sent to mm-hmm. friends at home, saying, arrive in New York, you mm-hmm. know, meet you at the pier, and so on. This was thought to be very modern and very exciting. You went to the purser's office, put your message in a pneumatic tube, it went up to the radio room and was sent. But the equipment had failed earlier that day, and so the operator... Chief Operator Jack Phillips had a backlog of messages, and when the message from the Californian arrived, it was so close that it blasted into his earphones. So he tapped back in Morse code, shut up, keep out, I'm working Cape Race. Mm, He he just made contact with the Marconi station at Cape Race in Newfoundland, and he tried again, and I think a third time, and each time he was rebuffed. So he gave up and Mm, took off his headphones and went to bed. Incredible. Yeah. And then you mentioned the rockets. There were white rockets seen and logged by the Californian, and they went and told the captain. The captain kind of said, well, signal them with a Morse lamp. They tried signaling them, but nothing happened. But Captain Lord of the Californian, it seems, did not want to risk his ship. Mm. Uh, He didn't, of course, realize it was the Titanic, and his career was ruined because of this. But to fire up his engines and pick his way through an ice field to find out what happened. The next morning, of course, the um, airwaves were filled with stories of the Titanic having gone down. So he Mm -hmm. made his way to the scene, but the Carpathia, who had behaved far more heroically and raced through the night from 75 miles away, dodging icebergs and so forth, had already picked up all the driving passengers. Sorry, and speaking of which, you mentioned the double haul and so on. Is it correct that had the ship only been torn into four compartments that it would have survived? That's correct. The uh, so-called watertight compartments were only the four at the bow and the four at the stern because those were the most likely places for an accident. Right. And some people speculate that if it had hit the iceberg head-on, although people would have been killed from the collision, the ship might have survived. That's speculation we don't really know. Mm, But by turning the wheel and trying to avoid the iceberg, the iceberg scraped along the starboard bow past the first four compartments. And Thomas Andrews, the ship's builder, who was on board for the maiden voyage, along with a crew of men to look out for problems, immediately sensed there was a problem and went down and did a tour of inspection. And when he saw mailbags floating in the mailroom, which he knew um, were beyond, he knew the mailroom was beyond the first four compartments. Mm. He knew there was a serious problem. And he raced up the stairs to the boat deck and and to the bridge and said to Captain Smith, the ship has an hour, an hour and a half at most. Well, the Titanic actually lived for two and a half hours because of the extraordinary bravery of crewmen who stayed at their posts down in the lower decks of the ship, keeping the lights on and so on, to avoid panic as the ship slowly filled with water. Mm -hmm. So how would you classify the atmosphere in the world, both in England, U.S., and the rest of the world? What did the disaster mean in terms of any changes socially, politically, or economically? 
Well, it was an absolutely sensational news story. So every kind of meaning was assigned to it and, and has been assigned to it ever since. There's a Harvard sociologist who wrote a book about what the meaning of the Titanic story and throughout the different eras and how it's been interpreted. But one of the meanings ascribed to it was the heroism of the men. Mm. Uh, because so many first-class men like Astor stood by and allowed the women into the boats. And of course, suffragism, women clamoring for suffrage, was an issue at the time. So immediately that was seized on. Thousands of poems written and submitted to newspapers. But one poem, you know, vote for women was the cry. But then boats for women was the cry when the brave went forth to die. Mm. Wow, that's interesting. So all kinds of social issues. Uh, of course, the Sunday after the disaster, there are thousands of quotes from the pulpits, of course, who saw this as God's punishment for man's arrogance. Mm -hmm. Some claimed it was because of card playing on the Titanic on the Sabbath. And, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, it was interpreted as being a modern tower of Babel, man's arrogance and blind belief in technology. Yes, it was seized on for all kinds of reasons. And in Britain, there were strong class differences since mm -hmm. so many working-class passengers had died while first-class passengers survived. The survival rate for first-class women and children was very good. Yeah. And uh, Lady Duff Gordon, the famous couturier who had grown up in Guelph, she and her husband became victims of this because they had survived in a boat with only a dozen survivors that could have held as many as 40. Mm. And uh, so they had to testify. They volunteered, actually, to try and clear their names. But they became the focus of a tremendous amount of resentment. The Lord and Lady had their own private mm -hmm. lifeboat. The, the privileged. And, uh, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So there was a rebellion against privilege, particularly in the U.K. There were all kinds of interpretations. The, the immediate impact... The recommendations from the investigations were that there should always be enough lifeboats for everybody on board. They had to install new davits on the Olympic and on the sister ship Britannic when it was eventually built, although it was immediately converted to a hospital ship because World War I had begun. And the International Ice Patrol was established and, and so forth. So some, some regulations were changed, but it was not a huge history-making event. Although, of course, it's often seen as the warning bell for World War One, which, mm -hmm. you know, a complacent society steaming towards disaster on the Western Front. In fact, in the introduction to Gilded Lives, I have a quote from Blanche Ulrichs, who was a, an actress and a, and a poet, and also a daughter of one of those wealthy Newport families. And she said that the Titanic was if some great stage manager planned that there should be a minor warning, a flash of horror, before the greater calamity to come. Mm. And, of course, World War I accelerated a lot of the changes in society that were encapsulated, all the inequalities and so on that were encapsulated on the Titanic. Like a floating metaphor. Exactly. But, I mean, the great strike and all those things that occurred after the war 
But yes, indeed, the Titanic is a floating metaphor for almost whatever you wish it to be. Well, I was just going to ask you, that would be my final question for this segment, Hugh, is if there's a moral to this story, Mm -hmm. what might the moral be? Yes. Well, a blind faith in technology, I Mm. think. And you mentioned arrogance earlier, but I also quote Walter Lord, who is the great dean of Titanic historians who wrote A Night to Remember, whom I actually got to know a little bit. And he wrote in the introduction that I asked him to do for Robert Ballard's book on the discovery of the Titanic, what is the meaning of the Titanic? Why does it continue to resonate? Mm -hmm. And he said the thought occurs that the Titanic is a perfect example of something we can all relate to. The progression of almost any tragedy in our lives, from initial disbelief to growing uneasiness, to final total awareness. Mm. We are all familiar with this sequence, and we watch it unfold again and again on the Titanic, always in slow motion. So we get the full panoply of human behavior, people behaving nobly, putting, helping immigrant women and children into lifeboats and not trying to escape themselves to people um, hiding themselves in lifeboats and so on. Of course, Jay Bruce Ismay, the man I mentioned at the start of the interview, the president of the White Star Line, got into one of the last lifeboats and was vilified for the rest of his life for so doing. Mm-hmm. He became reclusive and suffered greatly from the gave up his position with White Star Line. And so you get the full range of human behavior. Including Marconi's first iPhone. <laughs> yes, it's a far cry from the from the iPhone, but it was a <laughs> it was a major uh, renovation of the time. That question. Well, Hugh, I want to thank you very much for coming mm-hmm. on the podcast and talking to us about the Titanic, its promise, the disaster, the aftermath. Really interesting, really edifying. And we're going to have you on again uh, sure. soon enough for a full length interview. So, Great. folks out there, stay tuned. And Hugh, thanks again. Yes, you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll be in touch. We'll talk to you soon. Sure, for sure. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, as our guest uh, Hugh Brewster just uh, mentioned about the Titanic in regards to preceding World War I, of course, World War I happens from 1914 to 1918. Yeah. And at the end of World War I, more than a million soldiers re-enter the workforce in the U.S., which resulted in lower wages while prices also fell after the inflation they had experienced during the war. The 20s also opened on a bad economic note before recovering and spiraling upward for the rest of the decade. Between the start of 1920 and the summer of 1921, when the Dow bottomed out at about 64, which doesn't mean much uh, to non-investors, but it's significantly more telling when you put it in perspective and learn that the Dow skyrocketed during the so-called Roaring Twenties to about 318 when the market collapsed to trigger the Great Depression. If you had invested $1,000 when it bottomed out in 1921, you would have ended up with close to $6,000, not including dividends, when the market collapsed in 1929. And if you'd used borrowed money to do it, which many did, you'd have many multiples of that amount. Right. So the promise of the so-called Roaring Twenties came from a surge in general prosperity, except for farmers who had done well during the war until demand for their products 
quickly declined as agricultural production recovered in Europe. Many farmers had massively overexpanded during the war and were left with too much capacity and ended up being financially overextended. Yep. Almost everything else seemed to be on a relentless rise, a monumental recovery, which was largely spurred by technology, most notably the automobile. Mass production was enabling widespread car ownership so that by the end of the 1920s, roughly 60% of American families owned a car. Yeah. So with all this access to cars and the expansion of the roads to drive them on, it opened up new areas of the country, and especially Florida, which also created booms in tourism, land prices, and the uh, ever-expanding suburbs. Mm -hmm. wow. Trucks also began to compete with railroads to carry goods and commodities uh, across the continent. Electricity was widely available, and communication technology was transforming industry, and alongside the car, enabling populations to spread out. Yeah. By the end of the 1920s, more than 40% of all American households had a telephone, even more had a radio, providing news, entertainment, and advertisements for all kinds of wonderful new electric household products that were hitting the market, oh. like fridges, washing machines, and vacuum cleaners, largely made possible by the rising availability of consumer credit, the details of which uh, are a whole other discussion. Suffice to say that it was the tool that gave middle-class Americans the means to buy all these goods and services. Workers' wages, however, didn't keep up with uh, company profits or with inflation during the 1920s. So while asset prices and the general standard of living went up, the improved standard of living was largely fueled by debt rather than outright ownership. Right. The uh, same credit availability that gave rise to the promise of prosperity, ironically, was also a main contributor to the disaster that would follow because... All that available credit also gave Americans the means to buy stocks. All sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Anyway, even though only about 16% uh, of U.S. households were invested in the stock market, they uh, increasingly used borrowed money to buy them. The promise began with a market that was cheap and an excitement about technological developments. And it was driven to overconfident excess by people who saw an opportunity to get rich quick and failed to consider the potential risks. Mm -hmm. On top of all that, investment trusts were launched to take advantage of this enthusiasm for stocks and to direct more money into the market and into the pockets of the financial industry. There was a huge amount of fraud and insider dealing was pretty common. Yeah. At the time, no guarantees were offered by the banks to their customers who recklessly invested in stocks and the downward slide was made even worse as Europeans were purchasing fewer and fewer products, American products, as a result of their own economic difficulties. Yeah. Between uh, 1925 and 1929, the total of the New York Stock Exchange increased from about $27 billion to $87 billion. And this rapid expansion was further encouraged by a risky practice that made it possible to purchase stock on margin, meaning that uh, an investor could borrow money, sometimes up to 75% of the actual purchase price, in order to purchase a larger amount of stock. Borrowers often paid as much as 20% interest on loans, certain that the potential rewards were worth the risk. These kinds of practices became increasingly commonplace. Right. Stock prices began to decline in September and early October of 
1929, and on October 18th, the fall began. Panic set in, and on October 24th, which was known as Black Thursday, a record of nearly 13 million shares were traded. Investment companies and lending bankers attempted to stabilize the market by buying up great blocks of stock, producing a moderate rally on Friday. But the following Monday, the market went into a free fall, followed by Black Tuesday, which was October 29th, 1929, in which stock prices collapsed completely and nearly 16.5 million shares were traded on the New York Stock Exchange in a single day. Billions of dollars were lost, wiping out thousands of investors, and the stock tickers ran hours behind because the machinery, at the time, couldn't handle the tremendous volume of trading. So what was the actual result of the crash? So in the aftermath of all that, the stock prices had nowhere to go but up after October 29th. So there was considerable recovery during succeeding weeks. Overall, though, prices continued to drop as the United States slumped into the Great Depression. And by 1932, stocks were worth only about 20% of their value in the summer of 1929. The stock market crash of 1929 was not the only cause of the Great Depression, but it did act to accelerate the global economic collapse, of which it was also a symptom. By 1933, nearly half of American banks had failed and unemployment was approaching 15 million people, or more than 25% of the workforce. And those kinds of conditions off and on went to basically until World War II in 1939. And then the world plunged into war again, another disaster. So you have this pendulum Cycle. swinging back and forth and back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. So we have our world wars, and out of the Second World War, you have the 50s, a time of renewal and hope. Very similar again. to the 20s, actually. Yeah. And a time of conservatism in America, especially, because we're focusing kind of on America here. Mm -hmm. And you have rock and roll emerging in the 50s. You have young people finding their voice and starting to resist their parents' way of life and mm -hmm. lifestyle and attitudes, etc. And by the time you move into the 60s with JFK etc. coming in, you have a whole world of baby boomers who are going into their teens and finding their mojo and going to university campuses where there's activism growing. People like Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and, right. and Timothy Leary and these people. And there's a whole civil rights movement that has grown and it's really loud at that point happening. Women's liberation is happening. There's experimentation with drugs, with LSD and other kinds of drugs to blow your mind. The summer of love happens in the 60s. Mm -hmm. It's a time when there's this whole movement of promise and hope and egalitarianism, the resistance to the Vietnam War later on in the decade galvanizes all kinds of different activist groups to work together against the war effort. Mm -hmm. So all of this promise of a new kind of communalism where people are equal and sharing. So there's communes created and different kinds of spiritual experimentation happening. Self-help, sensitivity training, Esalen, Big Sur in California. Has. Yes. So it's an incredible, and then the music, Folk music, huge in the 60s. All kinds of music. Right? Yeah. Folk music finds its heyday in the 60s with Dylan and Joni Mitchell and all these people. And plus psychedelics and psychedelic 
bands, if you like. Jefferson Airplane. You have Jimi Hendrix. Who's Cream. Kind of like a Cream. Good one. Yeah. Woodstock happens. So it's like the youth of America was galvanized mm -hmm. and felt like this is a new world. It's the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Yes. Yes. Right? The dawning yeah. of the age of Aquarius. Freedom, expression. Freedom, expression. Just incredible. Richie Havens. Mm -hmm. you know? But what happens? What happens? The decade rolls along. Vietnam. Vietnam finds its denouement and its conclusion. Nixon takes power. Again, you have that major shift, a right. political shift. From, yeah, Kennedy and Johnson and those people to a Democrat Republican, to Republican. To Republican presidents. Mm -hmm. Most of them in, in the 70s were Republican presidents, mm -hmm. 70s into the 80s. Nixon brings the war to an end, ultimately, on mm -hmm. his watch, right, in 72. So now you've got some of the impulses to resist the man, so to speak. They start to fall away, and there's less to push against, in a way. Mm -hmm. Icons die off. Jimi Hendrix, overdose, 1970. You got four major rock stars that died at the age of 27. Janis, Janis, Janis Joplin, Joplin, 1970. Morrison. Morrison, 71, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, the Beatles break up, 1970. That's right. right. So all of these interesting phenomena happening to kind of deflate the energy. Yes. Not to mention that these young people, these teenagers, are growing up. And now you're moving into the 70s. With Republican presidents and more yes. conservative fiscal policies and all this stuff happening. Mm -hmm. right? And these people are finding themselves out of school, needing to work. Many of them found a way, went back to the land and that sort of thing, and lived that lifestyle. Wore the gypsy clothing, <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, flower power. Flower power, flower children. Yeah. But then the 70s comes in and now music starts to change. Well, let's go back for a second. 1965, a critical moment in the decade. What happens in 1965, I think, is very interesting. Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan moves from acoustic his, to his electric. acoustic folk roots yeah. to electric and gets lambasted for it. People have a hate on from the folk cohort. They have a hate on for Dylan for betraying his roots. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, for him, it was just the next stage and evolution or what have you. But in some respects, that choice to go electric... It's a kind of a harbinger to kind of bring the 60s to an end. It seems to be, if you think about what we talked about, the 20s, the Titanic before that. Yeah. It seems that technology is always a catalyst in one form or another. So even going mm. from acoustic to electric guitar, because a lot of instrumentation, for example, yep. started to go that way. Yep. We weren't that far away from digitizing things. Well, here's the thing. 1967... The first handheld calculator is invented. 1968, the computer mouse is invented by Douglas Engelbart. Mm -hmm. The first computer with integrated circuits is made. Robert Denard invents RAM, random access memory. Right. 1969 happens. The ARPANET, or the first internet, is invented. Mm -hmm. The artificial heart is invented. The ATM. Yes. I didn't know it went that far back. Yeah. Was invented. The barcode scanner is invented. Mm -hmm. So to your point, all this technology is changing the way people live and the way people think about life. And the way people work. Exactly. And the other element interesting to the 60s movements is that it's a kind of a weird combination of communitarianism, egalitarian. The group is important. Society. We're all brothers and sisters. At the same time... 
there's this impulse towards individualism right. in the 60s. Do your own thing, man. Wear your own clothes. Do whatever you want to do. It's all good. It's mm-hmm. all good. Freedom! Right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. one of those two has to win out. Impulses is going to come out gradually on top. And it turns out that in the 70s, the individualism starts to uh, become stronger and stronger. These young people need to find jobs. Right. So they start to filter into the corporate world mm-hmm. and find jobs. People like Jerry Rubin, who was a real shit kicker, yep. activist, wearing revolutionary American military outfits in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. You just watched that on the Chicago 7 trials the Chicago, on Netflix? He was one of the Chicago yeah. 7. I didn't yeah. see that, but it's very uh, good. I hear that. He goes into the corporate world, makes millions of dollars, and feels that that's the revolution that should have been happening, mm-hmm. not the other. So he kind of betrays those roots in a way. We always gravitate to pleasure and comfort. Well, sure. And so self-help groups, uh, eating better, uh, making your life better. It's all individual. It's all me, me, me. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's all going on. At the same time, music is changing. Now you have disco. Kind of mindless tribal beat music, if you yep. pare it down. Right, 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 right. So the message is no longer important, the words of the music, no, the it's activism. About, it's about entertainment. Entertainment and dancing. Mm-hmm. And then fashion, even fashion changes from that gypsy look to bell-bottoms, sharp-tailored shirts with vests. You know, you think about... Uh, John Travolta. Yeah, you think about John Travolta and that look and that feeling. And it's, again, it's me, me, and look at me. And there's a kind of irony because there's individuality and conformity going on at the same time. Exactly, yeah. What I think about in this conversation, Mm -hmm. we've given all kinds of bits of pieces of information from each of these three areas that we've chosen, the Titanic, the 20s, and the 60s. You can draw a lot of parallels to where we are right now. Yeah. So technology, artificial intelligence, the challenges we are having politically and socially, the arguments or the debates of individuality versus community. Yeah, sure. And we never seem to learn from the previous example. Mm -hmm. And I would say that right now we're very much into the late part of the 20s and the late part of the 60s in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And well, the thing is this too. I mean, with the 60s, you think about uh, there's a series that was on, and it was very popular, called Mad Men. Mm-hmm. About Madison Avenue. Yeah, I watched it. Right? Mm-hmm. Which takes place in the 50s, kind of really starts to rev up, moves into the 60s. Right. And the appearance of the 60s is that commercialism and consumerism is downplayed. It's kind of disappeared amongst all this activism and mm-hmm. I mean, do it yourself and don't buy, don't buy, don't buy from the corporate uh, beast and yeah. all that stuff. But they didn't die off. Madison Avenue just adjusted and worked nicely into the 60s psychedelia and that whole feeling of that and just surfed it. It didn't die. No. It carried on. They adjusted. Adjusted, as it always does. And then consumerism then blasts through the 70s and the Mm -hmm. 80s and and to where we are now, where it's everywhere. And the cycle's always the same, though. There's an opportunity to make a buck. Right. And now aided and abetted by the internet even more. So Mm -hmm. that impulse never left. So the promise of the 60s 
has led to, you could call it a disaster if you want. I guess it's from whatever point of view you're at. Yeah, yeah. What was beautiful of the 60s just kind of died off and was overtaken by more superficial values, if you like, and that sort of thing, which in some respects is a disaster, you know. Well, like you said, though, it's very, very important to know what your perspective is and what you value. I would suggest that even values yeah. became more confusing. Yeah. Because I think if you examine all these things, if you can go back to just the simplest definition of value, like what is it that you value most? Yeah. And unfortunately, we get caught up in this maelstrom of technology, of well-being and health and prosperity. The problem, I think, comes when there's this great complacency and arrogance that goes with it. Right, which was there in the Titanic, it was right. there in the 20s, and there in the 60s in a way, too. Because I think those flower power kids, there was an arrogance there, too. Yes. This is the world. We're now creating the new world. It's the, our dawn of the age of Aquarius. Right. And they're forgetting that there's a whole wide world out there who is completely other right. and not interested in their psychedelics. Yeah, know? and to me, it's not about things happening. We know things are going to happen. For yeah. me, the important lesson is correction. So you go too much to one side, then too much to the other side, pull it back into the center. And I think that's where we are right now. And it's very evident on the political platforms yeah. worldwide. I mean, it's obvious in the U.S. that necessity to regroup, reassess, mm -hmm. and find that more moderate line that does away with the extremes. Yeah. Right? Which serves the majority, not the minority. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do we uh, finish this off? It's a really interesting discussion. We had Hugh Brewster on talking Titanic. You've talked about the Great Depression. I've talked about the 60s and the promise of the 60s and the disappointment of it in a way, the aftermath. And here we are in the middle of COVID, yep. trying to find positives. And in fact, our last podcast of the year, which is not the next one, but the one after, correct, is going to be kind of the reverse of from promise to disaster. It's going to be promise out of disaster. Yes, and the only other podcast in between, of course, we're going to be interviewing Hugh Brewster that we had on earlier in the show today. He's yeah. going to be our next podcast. A full interview with full Hugh interview Brewster, with Hugh. He, he's a really interesting man and uh, his connection to the Titanic and other uh, historical events. Yes. He's really knowledgeable about that. Mm -hmm. We're looking forward to that. So that's the rest of the year, folks. Yeah, and we want to end the year on a positive note. Exactly. And despite all the things that you and I discuss on this podcast, we've always, in the back of our minds, we've always tried to look for the positive side of things. Sometimes it doesn't sound that way because we're just discussing things that are existent. It's not stuff we're making up. Always <laughs> look on the bright side of, of life. life. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> good, good note to end it on here. Uh, yeah. Again, we'd love to hear your comments. Yeah, and an audio book could be a bonus if you contribute. Yeah, and we have a little button on our website. You just press and record. Exactly. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com dot com.